Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Uh, we have a special uh, guest and a special edition because this is we are still in the middle of the election, apparently. We all thought it would be over, but we're not. Um, so my guest today is Josh Douglas, who is the Ashland Spears, Inc., Distinguished Research Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. Um, his book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, is a great book, and I recommend it to everybody, and we will talk about that book in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, Josh has written essays, articles. Um, he's a well-known scholar. He is an election law expert. He is a co-editor, a co-author, excuse me, of Election Law Casebook, and I can't think of anyone better to have this week than Josh. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to see you and, and have a conversation with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. We, we, we usually spend summers together uh, down, in, down in Florida at a, at a legal conference that got canceled last year because of COVID, of course, and uh, I miss seeing you there. All right, let's start with this, um, Josh. Uh, often at the beginning of these podcasts, I ask my guests to give me three myths, called Supreme Myths, uh, about their expertise. Why don't you throw at us three myths about election law, if you don't mind? Or sure. elections, I mean, they're, they're- elections. There's probably lots of myths that we could talk about, but here's three that I'll give you and then we can go into the details. Yeah. Uh, one is that many people think the right to vote exists within the U.S. Constitution, uh, and it doesn't, the, the, <laughs> at, least, at least explicitly. Unlike state constitutions, which do explicitly provide protection and confer the right to vote, the U.S. Constitution uh, does so in a way that says you can't discriminate on the basis of certain characteristics in voting, but it doesn't actually affirmatively grant the right to vote. Um, the second myth goes to uh, what tons of people say to me, I'd love to have this reform, which is election day as a national holiday. But actually most people that study this uh, suggest or, or concede that that's actually a bad idea because it would have some negative consequences huh. that we could get into. So actually I, I don't support election day as a national holiday as compared to some other election reforms. And the third myth is that um, many people, everyday Americans, think that they have no influence on the way in which we run our elections and in election laws and election policies. And, and I think the evidence just demonstrates that that's not true at all. And in fact, the history of voting rights expansions demonstrates that it really does start at the local level from everyday Americans. So there's three for me. There's no explicit right to vote in the US Constitution. Election Day is a national holiday, has some bad news associated with it, and everyday Americans actually can influence the right to vote. Well, those are great. So let's just start right there and unpack those three. Um, Start with the first one. So just to be clear for the non-lawyers, non-law professors watching this, I assume all 50 state constitutions have a right to vote in them. Is that right? Actually, 49 of the 50, interestingly. (laughs) Um, Arizona doesn't have an explicit uh, uh, state constitutional provision. It does say, and their constitution does say that all elections shall be free, and I think it's free and open or free and equal. I can't remember which one of those two. Um, And the state courts there have construed that free and equal or free and open clause as conferring the right to vote. So I think we can say all 50 state constitutions protect the right to vote. But uh, it's actually 49 of the 50 that have explicit language. Now, I'm not free and equal or free and open. About half of the constitutions have that clause as well, including Arizona's. Okay. And by so, the way, I actually looked at the history of trying to fix. I wrote an article called The Right to Vote Under State Constitutions. Yeah. That trying to look in the history of why Arizona's doesn't, because it was uh, enacted around the same time as New Mexico's that does. And basically, I couldn't find anything. That's I, mean, fascinating. I could find no good reason for it. That's fascinating about Arizona. All right, so I have two interrelated questions about this, I think. Um, the first one is, so, so theoretically, let's take my state, Georgia, or your state, Kentucky. Either state could repeal its provision, that constitutional provision, and its state constitution that guarantees the right to vote. And if they did that, the, by the way, those, the right to vote in, in, in Georgia and Kentucky and all the other states is that a right to vote in state elections or federal elections? Well, so the provisions are not 100 percent clear. Typically, they usually say something like every citizen of this state is a qualified elector or every person in this state shall be entitled to vote. So they don't actually explicitly say in which elections. They just say people are voters. So so couldn't Georgia. OK, just, this is wild and crazy, but, you know, we're in wild and crazy times. So 2020. 
Couldn't nobody would deny that we're in wild and crazy times. That's the one thing we can all agree on. Um, couldn't Georgia repeal its constitutional amendment? In which case, the only protection for the right—I mean, its constitutional right to vote—the only protection we'd have in terms of voting would be whatever protection the federal courts make up, right? I mean, Georgia could announce, forget it. From now on, the governor is going to appoint whoever he wants as the next governor, and you don't get a right to vote on this. And there's nothing in the federal constitution, in the text. That would stop that, right? At least in the text explicitly, um, so long as the change to the state rules wasn't discriminatory on the basis of race, discriminatory on the basis of sex, right? So you have some constitutional amendments that do provide a floor of protection. Um, But yeah, I mean, arguably, if the state wanted to just take away the right to vote, uh, at least you know, there are our concepts, there are structures of our <laughs> democracy and our constitution that could arguably cut against that. But it's just in terms of a textual matter, that's right. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that would necessarily stop that. So if if so, if, if Georgia said from now on to vote, you have to have a college degree. That's from now on, you, you don't get to vote in, in either state or federal elections in Georgia unless you have a college degree. And let's assume it's not racially based and not gender based. There's no legislative history about it being a subterfuge. You know, it's just they, we, they decide we, you have to have a college education, whatever. Um, the Supreme Court would strike that down. We know that. On what basis would the court strike that down? So this is where the court has recognized implicit protection for the right to vote. And that's through the Equal Protection Clause. So there's a series of cases from the 1960s. Uh, most famously, a case called Harper versus Virginia State Board of Elections right. involving a poll tax. Right. Virginia required all voters to pay a dollar fifty poll tax. And the court said in that case, essentially, this violates the fundamental right to vote and you know called it a fundamental right uh, or at least said the right to vote is, is of a fundamental nature. Um, and. Uh, place that within the Equal Protection Clause. Same thing with another case called Kramer. This had to do with this this guy, an adult who lived with his parents who wanted to vote for a school board. Quick pause, Um, quick quick pause. So so I'm older than you by a lot, and I've been teaching Kramer since 1991. And for the first 25 years that I taught that case, my student, I would make a joke about a 30-year-old living with the parents, and my class would laugh, and we would... Can't make that joke anymore. That joke, does, oh, that, yeah. that joke is offensive, and that tells a lot of. Anyway, I just want to throw that in there. Go ahead. But but, but here's here's actually what I think I think is still interesting. Uh, so I co-edited a volume called Election Law Stories, which uh, has chapters about the kind of inside basics of, right. of major Supreme Court cases in the field. And my co-editor actually wrote the chapter on Kramer. And he went to Atlantic City and interviewed Morris Kramer. Really? And it's a super interesting story. But one of my favorite parts of this is that Morris Kramer still lives in the same house <laughs> uh, that he grew up in, that he lived with with his parents when he brought this case. Um, he, his wife uh, are still in Atlantic City. Uh, he also wrote a book. And if you read the bio um, that he you know, drafted for his book, it talks about how he uh, secretly overturned a, uh, an attempted coup on the federal government. Um, so he's, he's an interesting guy. That's interesting. Separate from, yeah, separate from the, the, the what used to be a joke that unfortunately can't be. Yes. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, but 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 it is, is not. Yeah, as, no, that joke uh, that joke falls flat, and in fact, people get offended if I make it. So it's um, Josh. So both cases. But the fact that still lives in the same house, I think, is pretty amusing. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm definitely. I didn't know that. So you've taught me something already in the first six minutes. You've taught me something, um, Josh. So both of those. But here's the interesting thing. Again, to make this um, accessible, the court found voting to be a fundamental right. In both cases, so that the, the t- poll tax and the other – the facts don't matter. So fundamental right, really important. But they didn't do it like abortion or, or they didn't do it like a, a, under what we call substantive due process. They did it under equal protection. So That's my right. students never understand that. I try so hard. How, how do you – explain that to the people watching this. Like how does that work? Yeah, I mean that that is weird, right? Because when we think of the right to abortion, the right to privacy, right. you know, the contracept right to access contraceptives, that's under, as you said, substantive due process. Which I also teach constitutional law, and, yeah. and we talk about how 
there's essentially implicit rights that the court has found that people have. Um, and for voting, they basically said it's the substantive due process wing of equal protection, <laughs> which really makes no sense. That's like saying yellow, here's, orange, black. I mean, here's here's why I think they did it this way, because Harper came after a couple cases involving redistricting. Right. Uh, first Baker versus Carr, which uh, basically said federal courts can hear these types of claims about drawing district district lines in screwy ways. Uh, and Reynolds versus Sims, which says essentially every district has to have the same number of people. That's the one person, one vote principle. People throw around, around that phrase, one person, one vote, to mean lots of things. What it actually means is every district, whether it's congressional district, state legislative district, even city council, has to have roughly the same number of people. Except the Senate. <laughs> well, yes, but that is because the Constitution yes, itself yeah. sets up the, yeah. the Senate in, a, in, a, in that way. But uh, so the, the court was looking at what does it mean to have the right to vote initially through the lens of redistricting. Oh. And that makes sense to be an equal protection type of claim because right. when we're talking about one district is bigger than the other, then the value of your vote is less. It takes more people to elect someone in a larger district than it does in a smaller district. Right. Right. And so then right after Reynolds comes Harper and Kramer, these cases about they said the poll tax and the and the adult who wanted to vote in school board elections. And what the court had just done only a couple of years prior was recognize this concept of the right to vote, but it, through the lens of equal protection because it was thinking about it in terms of the value of someone's vote. So I think that's what happened doctrinally, um, which is to say, I actually don't think there is a meaningful difference between recognizing it under equal protection, or at least maybe there shouldn't be, um, as compared to it. They probably should have said due process. They probably should have said substantive due process, but they had in mind what they just previously discussed, well, which was well, equal protection. Also, substantive due process hadn't really been... Uh, is, is, are those cases before or after Griswold? They're before, I think. They are. So Baker, well, so so Harper is, what, 1964, I think? That's before Griswold, um, right? Right. When was Griswold? I think 65. No, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. But <laughs> two con law professors can't figure out when Griswold was. but yeah, 60, Griswold is 65, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And Harper is, um, let's make sure we just get this correct as well. Harper is 66. So Harper actually was the year after. But just barely. But just barely after. Barely. And, right, and Griswold was kind of weird because it wasn't sure where it recognized the right was of the Ninth Amendment right. 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 Um, so I mean, there's lots of kind of strange so, things going on there as well. So, really, so Eisenstadt, before, right, on the, on the substantive due process in the 70s. So those two cases that you just mentioned, the Harper case and um, the, the, the poll tax case and the guy living with his parents case um, in New York, um, I think for a long time, really long time, people assumed the right to vote was protected by the Equal Protection Clause and states had to have really strong reasons, right, to distinguish among voters. But then we get to 2000 and something and we get the Indiana voter ID case. Yeah, but before that, there's a couple of cases that actually start to chisel away at this notion that the right to vote is a fundamental right. Um, in fact, my very first article in the election law world, even before I was a professor, is called is the right to vote really fundamental? Right. <laughs> I, I now I'm not sure why I use a question mark in an article title because I think it's confusing. But uh, but but and what that article looks at are the evolution of this to a few more cases. And the key cases are a case called Anderson versus Celebrezzi right. in 1983 and Burdick versus Takushi in 1992. Right. And in those cases, the court starts to chip away at this notion that states have to have a really good reason for burdening the right to vote. And the combination of those cases where they create this kind of somewhat confusing balancing test where you balance the burdens that a law imposes against the state's need to regulate the elections. What those two cases do is actually tell the, the states and the lower federal courts that states can justify their voting laws uh, with simple assertions of the need to protect against election integrity or to promote election integrity or the need to run their elections as they see fit. So that's where you get, you know, it happened before the 2008 case about uh, Indiana's photo right. ID law that's Crawford. Right. Uh, you get to this Anderson verdict balancing test that says unless a law imposes a severe burden on voters, 
by the way, the court's never told us what a severe burden is. But, right. Yeah, I guess again, I, you know it when you see it. Suppose. Yeah. I suppose, but uh, it, once it once there's a severe burden, then we get to that that you know the state has to provide a really strong justification. My, my, the and then we skip it. I want to I want to get in a minute tie this into originalism in a minute. But before we get there. Um, and then in, in 2008, I think you said um, the Indiana voter ID case comes, um, and I think that and the court upholds voter ID. Um, the most fascinating thing about that voter ID case, which I assume had substantial importance, you can tell me. But the most interesting thing to me about it is that the Seventh Circuit judge who wrote the opinion, Richard Posner, publicly <laughs> came out and said he was wrong, and Justice Stevens, who wrote the opinion for the Supreme Court, publicly came out. And said it was probably wrong. Is there any case in constitutional law history where the author of the Court of Appeals decision and the author of the Supreme Court decision, both within a decade or so, maybe a little more than a decade, said, no, a decade, within a decade, said we, we were wrong. We should have come out. Isn't that amazing? It is. I mean, Stevens' uh, assertion about this was a little weaker than Posner's. Okay. Um, I think Stevens was a little more measured in terms of saying – uh, and, and let's also be very clear about what Crawford held. There's a popular conception, if you look at you know people who are promoting stricter photo ID laws, they'll say, well, the Supreme Court upheld it in 2008. That's not actually technically what happened. What the Supreme Court did in 2008 was refused to invalidate Indiana's law because the plaintiffs didn't have good enough evidence of the disenfranchisement would occur, which is different than upholding it. Right. And, and here's what I think happened. And, I, and this is this to me is actually maybe the more interesting aspect of this. Actually, Josh, before you, say, before you say this, let me just mention to you, I think you know this, people know my podcast. And know, I'm really good friends with Judge Posner, and he's told me where he went wrong. So I can, so I, I've talked to him about it. So, so go, but go ahead. Go ahead. But, but in terms of separate from Posner, yeah. I'd love to hear what you, what, yeah. what you say yeah. uh, about what, what he's told you, if you can say publicly. I can't. But the, the most interesting aspect of the Supreme Court's decision to me was that it was actually a 3-3-3 decision right. so it was justice stevens who wrote the controlling opinion which refused to invalidate the law right. joined by roberts and kennedy right it was right. justice scalia who wrote a, con- a opinion concurring in the judgment and scalia said we should uphold all photo of course he did of course and then there's three dissent yeah. three dissent, right but here's what i think actually happened um and i have no proof of this this is speculation but i actually think stevens knew exactly what he was doing huh which is, this is Robert's first year as chief, right? Right. Stevens goes to Roberts and says, let me write the opinion, and I can write a narrow opinion, and what I'm going to do is write an opinion that leaves the door open for challenges to laws that are really egregious when the plaintiffs have better evidence. And my guess is Stevens thought to himself, if I join the other three liberals in dissent, then Scalia gets this opinion. Yes. And this becomes a 5-4 decision that upholds all photo ID law. So I call this strategic compromise that I think Stevens actually was strategically compromising perhaps what his true thoughts on this were, knowing that if he dissented, Scalia gets to write a much stricter opinion. Okay. So I I think it's a fantastically um, interesting hypothesis and probably true. Uh, Justice Brennan did that all the time. So I don't know if you teach federal courts, but anybody who teaches federal courts, we have so many Brennan opinions that don't sound like Brennan where he closes the courthouse door. Obviously, he was a great liberal and usually opened the courthouse door. But there are many, especially in abstention, but other places too, where it's clear he's writing an opinion he doesn't really believe to avoid a worse opinion by a Scalia or somebody else. And of course, I have to be selfish here. What I find fascinating about that is that's not what judges do. That's what politicians do. I mean, a ju- no, I'm th- I mean you, know, you know my book. I mean, I, you know, when I say the court's not a court, I mean it. And that's one of the reasons, because they, they have to negotiate this stuff all the time. The Court of Appeals does too sometimes, but, not, but nowhere near as often and not like this. Um, I think you're probably exactly yeah. right. Uh, Posner told me that it's very simple for him, and this may, will make sense to you. The plaintiffs didn't have their proof. If the plaintiffs had their proof, he was open to them winning. But, he was, and, and, but when this case was presented, it was before people like you did such a great job at exposing the lack of evidence of in-person voter ID, uh, uh, in-person voter fraud. And Posner told me, after, I mean, he told the world this, he just went into more detail with me, that he just, there was no, there was no evidence. And, and he would... Well, yeah. The problem with that, though, is that at the district court level, the district court 
uh, threw out the plaintiff's main expert, saying that the expert was unreliable and didn't have good enough qualifications, which I actually think that evidentiary uh, uh, issue was questionable right. uh, in terms of what the district court. So it's true that when it got to Posner at the Court of Appeals, the plaintiffs maybe didn't have good evidence, but that's in part because their main expert's report got tossed. Right. At the which is also fascinating. Now, the other thing I was going to say about Stephen's yeah. opinion is even if he was trying to be strategic, he did a terrible job at it because he you know, wrote a bunch of language which has been very, very harmful yes. for the cause yeah. of voting rights. Uh, since. So, you know, and this notion that basically all states have to do is say, we just want to protect our elections and then they can get away with essentially anything has gotten us into a really dangerous place. So although the opinion might have been worse, it's has Scalia written it. It's, you know, Stevens certainly didn't help. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree 100 percent with all of that. So let me just tie it in really quickly. I mean, we're like halfway done. We've done we've covered one thing. Love talking to you. Um, so let's talk about originalism and voting for a minute. If we, and of course you know my views, that originalists don't take history seriously and don't take originalism seriously. It's just a way to get their libertarian conservative results. But if we took originalism seriously, isn't it very clear that the right to vote not mentioned in the Constitution wasn't that important to the founding generation? Yeah, I mean it wouldn't exist essentially. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, they, the, the founders didn't want people to vote for Senate. Of course, the 17th Amendment changed right. that. Um, founders didn't want people to vote for president. And we see right now tying it into current events, yep. sort of this fringe, but but people are nervous notion that some state legislatures are going to disregard the will of the people in states like Pennsylvania and simply appoint electors themselves. And I think originalists would, would arguably have to say, well, that is consistent with what the framers did. Now, again, that's happening after the election as opposed to before the election. So there's a meaningful difference. But right. Yeah, I think that's right. But isn't it clear? Right. Well, so so I, I, this is the one election law issue I have looked at. There's one specific one. Um, and this is it. I don't think they can do it retroactively, and I think most people agree. Now, now, of course, the Supreme Court would have to decide that, and God knows what they would do. But there's no question they could do it prospectively, right? I mean, Georgia tomorrow could say, we're not voting for president anymore. Our governor gets to pick or whatever they want to do or the elect, you know, Right. So this is actually a concern I have for 2024 Me too. if, if a Republican-controlled legislature wanted to do this. So I've actually started looking into this a little bit more to, to think about what arguments there could be. The best one I've come up with, and, and um, this is very surface level, Have not maybe you've dived into it more than I have, but uh, here's the one possible argument against it. Under the 14th Amendment, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which people refer to as the Reduction in Representation Clause, yep. that clause says if a state denies the right to vote— for any election in the U.S., and it names presidential election on down, then their representation in Congress, the state's representation in Congress, is reduced by the same amount. So if you deny the right to vote to 20 percent of your electorate, then you lose 20 percent of your congressional seats. And in the 14th Amendment, it says shall. It said the representation shall be reduced. So right now, my thought is that I don't know if a court could say, state, you can't do this, but... It would seem to me that if a state like Georgia or Pennsylvania simply said, we're not letting the people vote for president, we're just going to appoint our electors ourselves, they would necessarily have to lose all of the representation in Congress under Yeah, basically, that Josh, that, that – well, a couple of things. That provision also talks about males only, which is interesting, right? I mean – well, yes, but that you, that that is modified by the no, 19th I know. Amendment. Uh, the, I, make that, I make that point because of my continuing battles – with Professor Chris Green at, 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 at uh, Ole Miss, including on our podcast, that when the 14th Amendment was passed, women were second-class citizens, period, full stop. Don't argue about it. And no, there's no way originalists can get from there to gender equality. Side issue, but, but that's why I brought it up. But more, more importantly, though, I, I, can Im- I can imagine a Supreme Court – so Mark Tushnet used to say – I've said this before on this podcast – close your eyes and try to figure out a New York Times headline – if you can't, the court probably won't do it. I can see a New York Times headline, maybe, Georgia um, decides to have the legislature name the electors. It's hard to imagine. I don't think Georgia would do it, but I, I can see it. What I can't see, and therefore Georgia loses all its members of the House. Like That, that headline I can't see. I, I don't know. Why, I mean, I, why can't you? I mean, you know, this is constitutional hardball here. If, if – 
Georgia has the right under Article 2, which says state legislatures right. shall determine the manner of appointing electors. Right. If, I mean, that, that seems pretty clear, and everyone agrees that Georgia could do that. Um, why wouldn't uh, the headline also be, and as a result, they lose their members of Congress? I, I mean, I think that it, it, it's this. It, I do have an answer for you that transcends election law that I don't want to get into because then we'll spend the next 30 minutes talking about my answer. Um, my answer is Supreme Court doesn't care about text, never has, never will. So, I mean, text doesn't matter. I understand you think a text is clear. I think, I think the question has to be who would enforce that, right? Yeah. So if it's a Republican-controlled Congress, yeah. then maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that solution doesn't get you anywhere. Right. Um, but if, if the Democrats continue to hold Congress, what would stop them from, you know, from the House basically expelling the members from Georgia? I don't know. Uh, and, and as a result, I think I think that, that they certainly could. Now, by the way, I think there's other arguments about the structure of the Constitution, sure. which would argue against sure. uh, Georgia or another state doing this, including the fact that if the right to vote is at least recognized implicitly within the Equal Protection Clause, right. that comes right. after right. the allegation of the manner to run elections, so it has to be read in conjunction with each other. But but uh, so I think there are other arguments as well. To put the icing on this, it's not really a cake because it's a disaster. To put the arsenic on this poison or whatever, um, I was I talked to an Atlanta Journal Constitution, our local paper um, reporter, at length last Friday about this, and we both agreed. I don't know about Kentucky, but I can tell you about Georgia. If Georgia tried to do that here, the city would get burned down. I mean, we the, the protests would be. It's unimaginable that could happen. Um, I hope that's true in Kentucky. I would think it would be, and every place else. Um, maybe Alabama's the exception. But I would think, even Mississippi, I think, people would just go crazy. So, all right. All right, let's go to myth number two and then your book. Um, myth number two was, and this surprised me, because most liberals uh, and most election law people that I talk to, I, I don't know the answer to this, say, of course, election day should be a national holiday. Most, a lot of other countries do it that way. It's really dumb that we don't do it that way. And, and they give all their reasons about people not being able to vote because they can't take time off work. And forget pandemic years. This was a strange year. But in a normal year, tell me why you're against that. Uh, so uh, it's not so much that I'm against that is that I'm concerned about the consequences okay. of it. And there are, are reforms that are a lot better. And here are the main consequences. The people that it will help are people like you and me who can find time to vote if we had it as a holiday or right. not. But what's going to do is going to harm uh, poor individuals who work hourly wages, who, who earn hourly wages, whose jobs will then have, give them, you know, their clothes. It's a holiday. Right. So they lose their time. Yeah. They, they lose their work day without any ability to get that fair, compensation. Fair. It harms uh, parents with young kids whose all of a sudden their daycare closes because, well, it's a national holiday. Right. We close. Um, and, you know, those people, we can find better solutions to help them vote that will make it easier for them to participate. We know what those are without those kind of negative consequences. Also, you know, for you and me, we might not use that time to go vote. We might use that time to take Monday off and then have a four day weekend. Right. Right. So uh, so does it actually help people that need the help? You know, we look at who's not voting because Election Day is not a national holiday. It's not you and me. Right. We're going to we're going to find our way to get to the polls. The people who we want to try to encourage to come out to vote and they do have hurdles. They have hurdles that election days and national holiday are not going to uh, to to break down. And again, mostly it's because of the hourly workers and because of daycare issues. So that raises. Uh, OK, I think you may have convinced me about that. Why, why couldn't we have early voting like we do now and that be a national holiday so that so so, so that. Well, they still lose their day of salary. I get what you're saying. No, that makes sense. You've, you've kind yeah. of persuaded me. Why don't we have a national voter ID card? Um, I mean, we don't have national photo ID laws, right? ID laws are all different yeah. throughout That's the dumb. country. Isn't that dumb? Um, yeah, I mean, the question is, again, how do you make sure everyone gets an ID? Uh, how do you make sure that you are uh, having a fail-safe mechanism, especially when What's, you know, why do, why do we need a photo ID law to prevent in-person voter fraud, someone showing up and pretending that they're someone they're not? It just doesn't happen, right? right? It's a solution in search for a problem. Now, photo ID laws aren't going away. Um, you know, people like them. It's more and more popular. They're getting passed by more and more states. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be involved in the debate here in Kentucky because we just passed a new photo ID law. But through my advocacy and, and the work of a lot of others, 
the law is probably the most mild form of a photo ID law in the country with lots of fail safes for voters who don't have one. Um, but a national uh, ID, uh, everyone had a national ID, yeah, maybe we would get there. But again, state uh, elections are decentralized. So uh, if, if we're going to uh, to federalize an, an aspect of, of uh, election law, ID is not the number one thing that's going to help improve our system. I'll never uh, forget. But before we move off the uh, holiday issue, I want to make I just want to make sure we put a, a period on that, which is to say there are solutions for this problem, which include expanded uh, vote by mail. Right. Uh, all Virgos vote at home, and you know actually early voting wasn't understood to improve turnout a ton before the pandemic. Right. Um, it would it would just time displace people who would otherwise normally. Vote. But I think now that we had the pandemic and we saw, I think this year is going to demonstrate that early voting actually is, is helpful. But, um, you know, I'm on the board of the uh, uh, advisory board of the National Vote at Home Institute, which promotes uh, expanded vote by mail opportunities. And that's really the way to get to the very problems that Election Day is a national holiday would would presumably solve, but without the negative consequences. That's fascinating. Um, all right. So one more question before you, we get to your book. Um so I was asked on a radio show to make the strongest argument I could if I was Trump's lawyer. Like they said, pretend you're Trump's lawyer. You know, you're a lawyer. You can do this. Pretend you're his lawyer and make the strongest argument you can. And, and I said, OK, but you've got to at the beginning and end of this, you've got to say he doesn't believe this because I don't. But, 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 I'll, but I'll make, you know, I'll pretend that I'll, I'm an advocate and I'll, I'll make it. And, and this was three weeks ago. So this is before or two weeks ago. So this is before. Um, this is right after the election, like two days after the election. Anyway, um, and I said what he's going – I don't know – what he's going to argue eventually in the media and probably in courtrooms is – what he'd be smart to argue is – I'm not talking I'm, – I'm Trump talking or I'm Trump's lawyer. We're not, we're not alleging fraud. We're not claiming any intentional misconduct here. But the pandemic was such a disaster and such a new thing. And mail-in votes and, and early voting and absentee voting flooded the states in a way that had never happened before, that the election is just not reliable. And because it's not reliable, we don't really know who we really – again, I don't believe this, but we don't really know who won. Then we have to have a redo or we have to figure out some other way to gauge who the states want to be president, maybe send it back to the legislatures, whatever. Um, my two questions, that's what I said. Um, does he have a stronger argument than that than I've missed? And how horrific is that argument, which I assume is pretty horrific, but you tell me. So here's what I've been telling the, the reporters I've been calling to ask about the Trump lawsuits. And, and by the way, I think we shouldn't be even being, we being the media at least, shouldn't even really be covering the Trump lawsuits yeah. because the whole goal is to – uh, undermine people's faith in the election and also to raise money. And, you know, these breathless media takes that every single uh, lawsuit that's filed just plays into that. Um, and so, you know, my, my advice is, you know, why are you even writing this story? Like, I, and, and really quickly, I wrote an op-ed that made this point and it got rejected by about four or five different media outlets um, because, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to criticize themselves. They want to run the story, right. Right. But Philadelphia Inquirer, which has been probably one of the best um, uh, newspapers in the country on covering the election this year, ran it. And they said, you know, we need to be we need to be self-critical, which I thought was uh, great. Wait, but Josh, hold so, on. But so, I, Matt, the technical the technical wizard making this all possible is actually from Philadelphia. So I'm sure he's going to appreciate your shout out to his to his newspaper. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so, um, so what I've been telling uh, reporters is, is he, you know, Trump lacks three vital things in all of these lawsuits. Well, at least one of these three things. He lacks the facts, right? Because he doesn't have any facts of any problems. He lacks the law. For example, when he filed suit in Pennsylvania, saying throughout the entire election because it's unconstitutional to have some mail-in voting and some in-person voting, right? That's how we've run elections for at least 150 years. And most crucially, he lacks a remedy because the margins are so big that. The, you know, he couldn't overturn the results, right? And when you lack all three of those, or at least one of those three, you don't have a case. Right. Now, on your argument, though, here's the one thing I'd add. Again, I don't believe this. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to give the same disclaimer as yeah. you did. Um, but here is the, the textual hook I would point to. Uh, a, a federal statute, 3 U.S.C. Section 2, says that if a sta state fails to make a choice on Election Day for who their electors are, then the state legislature can decide. Right. So 
you know, this this actually could kick in after the election if there's a failure to make a choice. And that's not defined. What does it mean? And actually, I was talking with my class just yesterday, my election law class. We were going over this provision. And what does it mean? Well, uh, one student said maybe it's a tie, right? That would be, I think, maybe a failure to make a choice if the state literally came down as an exact tie. <laughs> Um, what if there was this huge cyber attack that, that wiped out the entire infrastructure uh, during the voting process? That could arguably be a failure to make or a choice. Or a pandemic. Um, I don't like the res- Well, yeah, it would be the argument, right? The pandemic. But of course, the pandemic didn't hit like a hurricane would or a cyber attack or something like that. So uh, I don't think that that's, this is what a failure to make a choice means because the state set, them, set their processes up to make a choice. But if I were Trump's lawyer and I was trying to make an argument for why the state legislatures now do have the authority even after the election, that's what I would focus on. That's fascinating. You know, what went through my head when you said that, what always goes through my head when people make arguments that you and I both know shouldn't win but could politically win is I can think of about 25 Supreme Court cases off the top of my head with rationales with arguments they adopt worse than the one you just – Shelby County – Shelby County is worse than if the court came in today and said – not – I don't mean the consequences are worse. But the legal reasoning in Shelby County would be a lot worse than the court interpreting that section of the, of the of federal law to say, you know what? We don't have a good read on who the state actually chose, so we're going to wipe it out. I think Shelby County is worse than that as a matter of just legal interpretation. Do you, do you have sympathy yeah, for that? I mean, Shelby- yeah, I mean, Shelby County, you know, invoked this equal sovereignty yeah. of the state's idea, which was a somewhat pulled out of thin air. Not somewhat. I mean, you know, they cited a case from a couple years prior, um, you know, to, to, to invoke this concept. But if you look at that prior case, a Northwest Austin case out of Texas, it cites to a case from the, you know, 1911, I think, Coyle versus Smith. Uh, which didn't stand for the proposition. No, it's worse that than Robert that. I'm sorry, Josh. This, this is one part. Yeah. I, this is one thing I've written about it. No, no, it's worse than that. In Katzenbach, the court rejected this argument. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Roberts quotes Katzenbach and leaves out the part that rejects it. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing yes. thing. Anyway, anyway. Um, but also, but also, if you read that Coyle Smith, Coyle versus Smith case, it does not stand for what Robert right. says it stands. Okay, let's get off of this. We're running out of time. You wrote a great book, um, and. Um, one of the reasons I think it's a great book, there's a lot of reasons, but the non-scholarly reason that I have why it's a great book is there aren't that many constitutional law books about any topic these days that are optimistic, or that, that, that makes you feel good. Like most make us feel bad. I mean, whether it's race or abortion or this is kind of a, I, I mean this nicely and, and not to diminish its academic quality. It's a feel-good book in some way. So, so we have about five or ten minutes. Summarize your thesis and give some examples of what you're talking about because I really hope I, – I, you're the 19th guest of, my, of this. Um, I've done this. They've all written books or most have written books. Um, I don't usually promote the books like I'm doing now, but I think your book is really important right now in this moment in time. So go ahead. I'm going to shut up and just talk for a few minutes. Well, well, thank thank you for that. And this also gets to my third myth that I said yeah. where, you know, people feel like there's nothing you can right. do where you're just going to throw up your hands and say the system is, well, rigged. We can use that yeah. word. And, and unfortunately, both sides feel that way. Um, this book is about what's possible in our elections. And the, one of the key guiding points of when I wrote it was I wanted to focus on policies that were already in place somewhere. So this was not a pie in the sky book about, you know, I want to adopt this plan. Let's get rid of the electoral college, which I think we should. But I can't say that there's a path. I can't point to here's how you actually get it done. And so the policies that I talk about in my book, which are all about making our elections more inclusive, more democratic, more convenient, ultimately improving voter turnout. They're all things that some place in America has done already. And this is why I say that local uh, reforms are so important. And the other thing that was a guiding force for when I wrote the book, because I really wanted to write it, uh, an academic style book, but for a general audience. And I was, I was laser focused on writing an accessible book that uh, people would want to read who are not lawyers. And I did that through telling stories because I love reading nonfiction, narrative nonfiction that tells stories about people. It's my favorite genre of book to read. And so in telling the stories about the various reforms uh, that I wanted to see implemented in other places because they already had been implemented somewhere, I really dived deeply into 
What was the origin of that reform in that place? And who are the people behind it? And I was really pleasantly surprised to see that it was everyday Americans who just basically said, enough is enough. I'm going to change something in my local community. And, you know, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis famously said that states can be laboratories of democracy, that one state, courageous state, can try something out. If it works, it'll spread to other states. And I like to say that if states are laboratories of democracy, then localities can be test tubes of democracy that can try something out on a smaller scale. And if it works, it can go into even greater, uh, greater use. So let me give you a couple of examples yeah. as you hear my dog. In the I'll bring him on. I'll bring him on. I want to see him. <laughs> I think I think a dog walked by, which is why he, he was okay. uh, he's barking. Uh, if he comes in here, yeah, bring him on. You know, uh, I post pictures of my dogs on Twitter all the time. So I mean, yeah. Let's see, Rudy, come. See after comes. Rudy Giuliani? His name is Rudy, not after Rudy <laughs> Giuliani. We got him when, when we lived in Texas, and our, our favorite barbecue place is Rudy's Barbecue. Got it. <laughs> so, and we knew we were moving away from Texas. So, let's see the dog. Rudy. Hey, Rudy. He Does he vote? Uh, oh, twice, you Good. <laughs> um, so Let me give you some examples of those reforms. Uh, so one is ranked choice voting, right? This is a system where instead of having to vote for one candidate, you can rank order your preferences. I like this person first, this person second. And this you know, maybe doesn't make as big of a difference in the presidential election in the general, but it certainly can make a difference in the primaries, right? And people pick lots of the candidates. And I think it even makes a bigger difference in um, uh, local elections, elections for mayor, right? Or something like that. So this was actually used decades ago in places like Cincinnati, but it fell out of, out of use. And the modern usage of it started a handful of years ago in San Francisco. And it was really because of, in a large part, the impetus of an individual named Stephen Hill that I uh, discussed in the book. And you know, he was interested in, in forms of proportional representation and started learning about ranked choice voting. He's not a lawyer, just a you know, community activist. And so he started learning and thinking about ranked choice voting. And to get people involved and to understand it, he would go to bars and gather the attention of the crowd and say, hey, everyone, let's rank order our favorite beers. And because, you know, people have preferences, right? And if your favorite beer is not available, you're going to go to your second choice. And, you know, you may be not as happy, but you're still, still going to be happy. Uh, I opened the chapter talking about how I'm, I love ice cream and my favorite flavor is mint chocolate chip. But if I go to the ice cream shop and they're out, I don't just leave and not right. <laughs> go my second choice. Um, and what Which is cappuccino hand? chip, I hope. Uh, actually, mo- uh, mocha chip is. is okay, yeah. yeah Good enough. Close. Okay. Um, so, you know, and what does this do to campaigns? It actually improves the tenor of campaigns. It makes them a lot more positive because instead of just throwing as much mud at your opponent as possible, you're going to go and say, you know, hey, I know I'd like you to be, I'd like to be number one. I, I really hope you vote for me number one. But I know my opponent, Eric, uh, you know, one of my opponents, Eric, is a good guy. And, you know, if you have to put him one, I guess that's okay. Can you put me number two instead? Instead of throwing as much mud at you as I might, because it just to depress the turnout, I'm going to try to capture and create coalitions. So it passed in San Francisco through a voter initiative. It was implemented there. Then it started spreading to places like St. Paul and Minneapolis, Minnesota, Portland, Maine. And then Maine used it statewide for this past election after the voters have passed it actually several times. Um, and it was used for the presidential election and the U.S. Senate election in Maine. And now, just this year, as part of this election, Alaska just voted to use ranked choice voting in the future. They're doing a, a kind of interesting system where it's a top four system that move on the top four, move on from the primary, and then you can rank order your preferences from that top four. Again, this started at the local level because you know someone basically thought it was a good idea and and got it implemented. Um, by the voters and people love it. I mean, you know, people, some people say it's a little confusing uh, and, and Massachusetts, unfortunately, just rejected it this year. Um, I think because the governor there came out against it. Um, but once you start just understanding, all you're doing is just saying like this person first, this person second. There's really not very many good arguments against it. So don't, um, leaving aside the math part, which would be confusing to me. Um, but what, what I like about that is it, um, off the top of my head, is that it, um, we have such a binary system in this country, and it's coming to haunt us really badly. It's either or, either or, either or. And it would be nice not to have that. It would be nice to have a spectrum of choices. So I get, okay, yeah. give me one more because we're running out of time. Give me one more. 
Yeah. So maybe my, one of my favorite uh, stories is about a woman named Katie Fahey in Michigan, who after the 2016 presidential election was kind of fed up with, you know, she was upset with the result because she was not a Trump fan. Um, but she was actually mostly nervous about going to Thanksgiving uh, and uh, how the conversations would go because some of her family members were Trump supporters, some were Bernie Sanders supporters, and she was like, I just can't take you know, the, what, what's going to happen at Thanksgiving dinner. So then she thought, you know, what's the issue that you know, kind of everyone from all political sides can get behind as, as doesn't work with our system, and it's gerrymandering. Yeah. The practice of drawing lines where the politicians in charge get to choose their voters and uh, thereby essentially dictate the outcome of elections. So two days after election day, she posted on Facebook. She's 28 years old. She's working for the Michigan Recycling Coalition. She posted on Facebook and said, hey, friends and family, I'm thinking of taking on gerrymandering in Michigan. Anyone want to help? Smiley face. She told me the smiley face was important. <laughs> and, uh, and she thought that a couple friends and maybe her, some family members would contact her and say, yeah, let's go find an organization to, to do something about this. A funny thing happened. Uh, not very many of her family members responded, but she made the post public and people started sharing it and people started contacting her and saying, yes, I want to help out. Let's do wow. something. And then first a dozen, then a few dozen, then a hundred, then a thousand. And she was getting inundated with messages. So she turned to her coworker and was like, hey, Kelly, remember I told you, remember that post I put last week? It's exploded. What do we do? And they were like, well, let's look for an organization. They basically couldn't find one that they thought was was focused just on gerrymandering in Michigan. So they created their own. They called it Voters Not Politicians to send a signal that the drawing line should be based on the voters, not the politicians, the voters who should choose the politicians, not the other way around. And without boring you with all the details of what happened, they got a, a constitutional amendment on the ballot in Michigan. They gathered thousands of signatures, got it on the ballot in 2018, and it passed overwhelmingly to create an independent redistricting commission. And so now, for the next cycle that starts just next year, when we redraw the lines again to make them all equal population, uh, and the Supreme Court said we're not going to police partisan gerrymandering, Michigan will have a much fairer uh, map with their legislative lines because of this independent redistricting commission that they're implementing. And it all it took was a single Facebook post from a single individual. As she told me, we basically overthrew the government. I mean, peacefully. But we basically overthrew the government. That's an amazing story. Um, I wish we had one more hour because I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. But that, that's – your book is full of stories like that. And, and so if people are really tired of all the negativity and, and, there, and there deserves to be negativity in the age of Trump, in my opinion, if people are really worried, go read this book because it, it, it will um, – but, you know, that story has a happy ending until the Supreme Court strikes it down, right? Yes, exactly. And that's what the other thing I was going to say is that I am concerned now that court won't strike it down for state legislative lines, right. right? Because the court would have no authority to say you can't use this for the right. state legislature. It could strike it down for congressional lines. Uh, I'm definitely very concerned. There's a brand, there's a new doctrine that's getting renewed force, um, which basically says that state legislatures and only state yeah. legislatures can regulate federal elections and they can't even be, even be constrained by state constitutions. Um, now, the court rejected that argument on a 5-4 vote only five years ago in a case out of Arizona, as you know, but we have a much different looking court right now. So uh, it may not have a happy ending 100%, um, but just like the Florida um, felon reenfranchisement constitutional yep. amendment, right? Florida voters reenfranchise 1.4 million yep. uh, individuals with felony convictions. That doesn't have as happy of an ending because the legislature pulled back on that and the courts approved what the legislature right. did. But if you want to have a half class full perspective, there were still tens of thousands of Floridians who were newly eligible to vote this year who weren't otherwise. So it should have been much more. It should have been the 1.4 million. But at least there's some progress made. Uh, going back to the Independent Redistricting Commission, which, again, for people who aren't lawyers, law professors watching, just means that you appoint like Arizona did it with, by having, I think, three or – I forget, but three or four of each party and then they pick a tiebreaker and, and it's much more democratic. Um, I was the only liberal law professor I know who thought that the court should have punted on the redistricting cases. Um, and part of the reason that I, that I felt strongly about that – and I, I did write about that actually – was because I, I, think the, I think this is the only answer. This independent redistricting commissions is really a great answer to a lot of problems. I, I assume you agree with that. I, but then I think about Justice Roberts' dissent in the Arizona case, 
which I think, other than Obergefell, which is a same-sex marriage case, is by far his angriest dissent of his career. And he wrote, and you know, Kennedy was on a lot of five-four cases with Kennedy writing the majority and Roberts in dissent. But those two cases, Obergefell and Arizona, I think are his two angriest dissents. It worries me, Josh. I got to tell you, I, I I don't think the yeah. I mean, the, the, the one solace you can maybe take is that he didn't join in this year with Gorsuch right. and Kavanaugh right. and Alito when when those three and Thomas, you know, basically indicated that they they agree now with this doctrine. Right. Roberts didn't join those opinions. Now, you know, you can read whatever tea leaves you want. Is he being an institutionalist now? Is he, you know, does he recognize the crazy implications that using this doctrine would have? Um, but let me leave you with one uh, a, a sort of another one, Real, real quick, just people watching, they don't need Roberts to do this because they have five without him. Now. Well, we don't know about that. Yes, we do. Right? We don't yes, know. we do. Yes, we do. She's going to okay. vote Republican partisan lines every time unless it doesn't matter. She will. Go ahead, sir. Okay, fair enough. Um, but in terms of independent redistricting commissions, you know, the other story I tell in the book is about Sacramento mm-hmm. doing it at the local level, which also had extreme gerrymandering and really cut out the Latino community in the city council there. And through the independent commission got a much better representation for Latino right. population. So um, so it's not, you know, you know, we're often focused on the big prize, which, you know, understandably in terms of Congress and the presidency, but you can get progress at the local level, even on something like better representation for your city, which often impacts everyday people a lot more than uh, than what happens in the halls of Congress. It's very rare in my 30 years that a constitutional law professor writes something that is original and not stupid. Um, I thought I thought my first book was definitely original. I wasn't sure it wasn't stu- – now I'm convinced it wasn't stupid either. But at the time, I wasn't sure. Um, your, your, your book is both original and really smart. And, and that's well, – that, no, I really mean it. That's it's heavy lifting in our business because everybody writes about everything all the time. All right, one last question, kind of silly. The map behind you, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the world yeah. map, and I see, a blue, I see the United States completely in blue. What's that about? I'm, I'm in favor of that, but what's it about? <laughs> So this is a scratch-off map of places my wife and I have traveled to together. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and so uh, it, the map just happens to have the U.S. and Canada as blue. Yeah. I guess it's by it's best by con. I guess each continent is a different color. <laughs> okay. Um, now, unfortunately, we were supposed to cross off Peru and Chile uh, this summer, but the pandemic um, took that. Uh, I actually away from climbed us. Machu but, Picchu. Yeah, so I climbed Machu Picchu three together. years ago. It was one of the most amazing oh. things I've ever done. We had we had literally tickets ready. We lost a little bit of money on the deposit, but we had everything all set to go. And unfortunately, uh, what we're there are about twenty five great things about Peru. Uh, Somewhere between fifteen and twenty is the men are really short. And for me, that's a wonderful thing because I'm five. Anyway, Josh, this has been so great. I mean, uh, it's been great talking to you. And um, I I guess I'll leave you with your final word on this: Is Trump going to leave on January twentieth? Yes. Okay, good. And that- I'm not concerned. Uh, Joe Biden will take the oath falls. Now, you know, the Secret Service, they may have to escort him out. I don't think it'll get to that. <laughs> My guess is he'll go tomorrow and I'll go at some point and then just keep and just stay right. there. Um, but yes, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. And on that optimistic note, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. This has been great.